Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. My name is Dr. Justin Lay Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. On today's episode, I'm going to be speaking with Dr. Shana Skakun-Sparling. Shana has a PhD in applied social psychology and is a postdoctoral fellow working at Ryerson University. Shana's research has primarily focused on motivated reasoning and the factors that influence sexual health decision-making and sexual negotiation. In particular, a lot of her work has looked at condom negotiation and how sexual arousal impacts people's willingness to practice safe sex. We're going to be talking all about Shana's research in the second half of the program, but in the first part, we're going to be giving you an inside look at what a sex research conference is really like. I've been attending these conferences with Shana for the better part of a decade, and we've had a lot of fun and learned a heck of a lot. So we're going to give you the inside scoop on what these meetings are actually like, talk about some of the most fascinating things we've learned, and we'll also explore some of the things that people tend to get wrong about sex researchers and our conferences. This is going to be a super fascinating conversation, so let's get to it. Hi, Shana, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hi, thanks for having me. I am so excited to have you here. Thanks for joining me. And for those of you who don't know Shana, she is one of my sex research conference buddies, and we go way back. So I thought it would be fun to spend some time reminiscing about all of the fun sex conferences we've been to before and (laughs) some of the mind-blowing things we've learned. But before we get into all of that, I want to talk a little bit about your professional journey, Shana. I always like to start my interviews with this question. And I'm curious to learn how and why you ended up becoming a sex researcher in the first place. Oh, gosh. It kind of came from my undergrad because in undergrad, I was lured to a meeting of the, the campus newspaper because there was free pizza. And free food is a great way to get me to show up to stuff. <laughs> so I, a friend was going and I was like, free pizza, I'm in. And I, I went and I happened to be talking to the editor and I was like, you used to have a cool sex column in the paper. What happened to that? And they're like, oh, the student graduated. Do you want to take it on? And I was like, oh, okay, I guess I could do that. And so I started researching topics like independently to, so that I would have like this informative column in the paper because I didn't want it to be like, kind of like sex in the city. I was like in a monogamous relationship. I was like, people don't want to read about a monogamous relationship. So I was researching like topics and I got really interested in it. And so I decided, oh, this is something I could do for grad school. This would be cool. And a good friend of mine, she was doing economics and sent me some cool papers that were related to decision-making. And I was like, oh man, I think I'm really interested in this. And luckily, when I went to grad school, I had a really great supervisor who, although he's not a sex researcher himself, he was very supportive of letting me do whatever I wanted to do. So that kind of got me into this career area of like, started out researching how sexual arousal affects our ability to make decisions and then realized that there was a conference I could go to. I had like the first time I attended the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality, Quad S, I was just like so excited to go because I had read about this conference. And like, it's funny because the context that I had read about it was like, this was where a video of gushing was first presented was at at this mm-hmm. conference. Like that was the first scientific meeting where it was presented. And so when I had been researching that for an article for the student newspaper, I was like, oh my God. And then when I realized it was a real conference I could go to as an academic, I was like, wait, this is a real thing. 
<laughs> well, what I'm hearing is it sounds like you were initially seduced by pizza into <laughs> becoming a sex researcher. And then it's all been fun and exciting from there. It feels very on brand for me. Yes, it's on brand for me as well. But since you mentioned sex conferences, let's dive into that. And, you know, I don't recall exactly where we first met, but I know it was at a conference. And I think it was probably my very first one. I remember. Can you tell me, please refresh my memory. It was Omaha. Oh, yeah. It was a, it was quad ass in Omaha. And it's funny because I think the moment where we really bonded was we had come back from a bar or something. And like, there was like a small group of us. And you said, Shana, do you think you can convince the concierge to give us free cookies? Because we're staying at a double tree. And the best thing about a double tree is they give you cookies when you check in. But I had figured out how to convince this desk front desk staff to give us cookies anytime I asked. <laughs> so I got us cookies. And I feel like that that was our like major first bonding moment. <laughs> I love that you remember that. And I don't know how I managed to forget about the cookies. I might have had one too many drinks that night. But now that you mention it... <laughs> So you you mentioned the Society for the Scientific Study of Sexuality. That was my first sex conference too. And I really vividly remember the first time I went to it. I feel like the first one might have been in San Diego. And I didn't know what to expect going there. What is a meeting of sex researchers going to be like? You know, I came to sex research a little bit late in my career. I didn't actually really study sex in graduate school. I was teaching a human sexuality course, but kind of didn't get into the sex research until I became a professional. And that's when I started going to the conferences. So I didn't really know anybody and didn't know what I was getting into. But I was pleasantly surprised. Everyone was lovely. I had a great time. I learned so much. And it turned out that the only really awkward thing was telling other people that I was going to a sex conference because they kind of like had this idea in mind that I was like secretly going to an orgy or something. And I learned that my very first night in town because I'm sitting at this hotel bar by myself because I didn't know anybody. And someone who wasn't from the meeting asked me why I was in town. And I said, oh, I'm here for a sex conference. And they just kind of gave me this wide-eyed stare. And then they kind of like moved their bar stool away from me. <laughs> and I realized then like, okay, stop saying sex conference. Say a sex research conference or something else because people just kind of seem to get the wrong idea. So I'm curious, have you ever had any awkward interactions like that where, you know, when you tell people that, you're going to a sex research conference, they think you're like really going to a sex party or something or, you know, just kind of like, what are the reactions you get when you go to these meetings or when people find out you're a sex researcher? Oh my gosh, I learned pretty quickly not to tell cab drivers or customs agents that I was going to a sex conference. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh man, like, uh, what if they think that I'm a sex worker and they like don't let me cross the border? If I don't want to talk about it with somebody. I don't tell people I'm going to a sex conference. I tell them I'm going to a research conference, a science conference. Hell, <laughs> if they ask me more questions, I'll say it's about sexual health. Because there are some contexts where I don't want people to misconstrue or it's dangerous for them to misconstrue. Like I'm worried about customs agents having a weird reaction. But sometimes with a cab driver, you don't want to get into it. But sometimes you get a cab driver and you're like, I think this this is fun. I'm, I'm in the right mood to have this conversation. And they'll often ask a lot of questions. But yeah, people definitely have a lot of misconceptions about what it means when we go to a sex conference. But it's it's funny because if you go to like a trade conference, a trade show, like I guess it's all about that trade. So if, if they think that sex is a trade, 
I don't know. It's very, yeah, people definitely think that when you're going to a sex conference, that it is not going to be what it actually is, which is a bunch of nerds sitting around talking about their research. <laughs> yep. And I'm glad you brought up the customs thing because that reminds me of one of the sex research conferences I went to in Canada. I think it was probably the International Academy of Sex Research. And I remember the customs agent asking me why I was there. And, you know, I said, I'm, I'm going to an academic conference. I'm a social psychologist. And so she kept asking all these follow-up questions. You know, I was trying to not <laughs> talk about sex in the customs line, but she started then asking like, oh, are you presenting? And what are you presenting on? And I feel like at the time I was presenting on some friends with benefits research. And then she starts asking me a million questions about friends with benefits. And then like my customs experience became like free casual sex advice. But, <laughs> you know, sometimes you get those Amazing. unexpected reactions. And you know, I, I've had the same experience as you where I tend to moderate what it is that I say or reveal because sometimes you don't know how other people are going to react. And then sometimes people just want to treat it as a therapy session and they ask you a million questions. And it's like, you know, sometimes I'm on a three hour flight and I just really need to get some work done or I really need to get a nap and I don't just want to sit there and answer sex questions the whole time. And I know that a lot of my friends who are psychologists who aren't even sex researchers, they often don't even say that they're a psychologist when somebody asks because a lot of people do treat it as like, oh, hey, free psychotherapy, captive audience. And so one of my <laughs> former colleagues in graduate school, his standard line when he was on an airplane and wanted to shut the conversation down was he would lie and say that he was a mortician because nobody wants to talk <laughs> to a mortician. So, you know, a little pro tip, if you want to, you know, shut the, the conversation down, you can just make up a career. <laughs> I have had some really interesting conversations since like some of my newer work, I've been working more in the area of HIV. And when I tell people I'm an HIV researcher, I've gotten some like very interesting responses. Like I, I once had like a guy who was hating on me on the subway when he asked what I do. I said, I'm an HIV researcher. And he like took a step back from me. And like looked me up and down and I was just like, wow, this is very interesting. But it's also been like kind of cool. Like I've been, I've been in a cab where like the cab driver asked what I researched and I was like, oh, HIV researcher. Cause I was like, this is like the best way to explain what I do, even though it's not exactly what I do. And I ended up having a great conversation with the cab driver and giving him like a lot of education about like the new biomedical prevention methods. He'd never heard of PrEP. He'd never heard of U equals U. And I was like, this is great. Yeah. And sometimes it is that educational opportunity and that can be really valuable. But other times we encounter people who have a lot of stereotypes about us and, and what we do. And I think a lot of people tend to think of sex researchers, educators, and therapists as being hypersexual and that that drives us to do what we do. And so they think we're doing me search instead of research. But there's this really interesting <laughs> study that I like to point people to whenever I hear this stereotype. And basically what it found was it involved a survey of sex educators, researchers, and therapists. And I believe they were all people who were attending a conference. And they asked them about their sex lives and found that they actually are not more sexually active on average than the rest of the population. And the main differences are that these sexuality professionals are more accepting of sexual diversity and they're more likely to practice safer sex. So, you know, that perception, that stereotype of us doesn't really seem to line up 
with reality. Now, certainly there's a lot of variability and variation within the population of sex researchers, <laughs> just as there is in the general population, but on average, not as different as people might like to think. So Shana, what is a sex research conference really like and how is it similar to or different from a regular old academic conference? <laughs> so I attend I attend a few different conferences. I go to, I mean, we both go to SPSB, which is like a personality and social psychology conference. And I also attend, I mostly attend sex conferences. And I think one of the big differences between the conferences is when I present my research at SPSP or at conferences that are not sexuality conferences, I feel a little bit like a sideshow act. I feel like it's hard for people to see the rigorous, like serious methods. I mean, I'm like, I'm using real, real research. I'm doing real research here, but people get distracted <laughs> by the fact that to do my sexual arousal manipulation, I had people watch sexual explicit video clips and they're like, Oh, what's this? This is a porn study. Like what is, what are you doing here? And like, I had a very interesting experience presenting a poster at a conference where I could tell people were showing up at my poster because they thought my work was a joke because they'd kind of walk up to my poster with like a little bit of a smirk. And then it was really great chatting with them and talking them through my study and kind of watching the smirk drop off their face when they realized like that I was doing like a real experimental study and like measuring things in like a quote unquote real way. Whereas when I go to a sexuality conference, People are much more excited about your research and everyone's much more like open. Nobody feels like a sideshow uh, unless you're doing something like very, very novel. You, people walk up to your poster and they're like, oh, cool. Like that's what stimuli did you use for that study? Me, I'm using the same video. Actually, I ended up having a really funny conversation with another researcher from another university where we realized we were actually using the same video stimuli, just like we had happened to come across the same same director who who was making like feminist pornography that we decided would be good stimuli for our studies. Yeah, you meet more more people who take your research seriously and understand the benefits of it, which is nice. Yeah, and I'm glad you shared that story. I, I've heard that from a lot of sex researchers that they often don't go to the more mainstream psychology and other academic conferences because there is kind of that spotlight that gets put on you because they're not studying and, and talking about sex. And I've even found that at, you know, some of the relationship focused conferences that I go to, you know, it's a little weird that most relationship researchers don't really seem to study sex, you know, and they don't include sex related variables in their surveys and studies. And so the fields of sex research and relationship research, it, it's so odd to me that they are so separate. And when you try and have that mixing and intermingling of them, you know, then you wind up with that sort of sideshow phenomenon, which is, you know, just, it, it's weird given what a central role sex plays in so many relationships. But I think what you've said highlights the fact that, you know, there actually isn't that much of a difference between the sex research conferences and the regular old academic conferences. It's still, you know, people nerding out <laughs> over science and research. You yeah. know, I guess one of the other main differences is that we get better swag bags at the sex conferences. And, you know, you might get some condoms and lube <laughs> along with your program that were, you know, provided by some sexual health and wellness companies. But, you know, other than that, not a lot of differences, except that I will say, I think personally, sex researchers are more fun. <laughs> and I do tend to have more fun conversations and interactions in those environments. And 
You know, one of the other differences is that sometimes you hear debates, academic debates at a sex research conference that you would just never hear in any other academic setting. And so here's one example, and this comes from my very first sex research conference. I'm sitting in the audience for a presentation of a study and the researchers had content coded like hundreds of hours of porn so they had research assistants watching these videos and recording every single sex act that happened so if it was vaginal intercourse or anal sex or oral sex you know everything was coded into a very fine level of detail and the researcher was talking about how they even included you know kinky and other sorts of sex acts in their coding so that included things like fisting and that led one of the audience members to raise their hand and ask so how did you operationally define fisting so does four fingers count or does it have to be all five fingers and does it have to go past the knuckles and for those of you listening who might not be familiar with fisting you know basically it's the insertion of a fist into a body cavity usually the vagina or anus and you know so we were sitting there having this whole debate over how you define what fisting actually is when you're content coding it in porn. And I'm just sitting there thinking to myself, gosh, nowhere else <laughs> would people be having this debate. But they're, you know, really approaching it scientifically. And I think that really shows their commitment to, you know, when we're studying these things, we have to think about it at a very fine level of detail and analysis. So did you ever have any moments like that where you just heard debates, discussions where you're like, wow, you're, you're not going to hear that anywhere else? <laughs> I think I was in that same session because that's the top one uh, that comes to my mind too. Because I love that. I love how seriously sex researchers, researchers take their research, which of course they should. They're all serious researchers. I'm trying to think if there's anything else. I mean, I'll, content coding is always super interesting. And it's not just with porn, it's with anything. Like when people want to do yeah. a scientific analysis of any kind of erotic material, they have to find a way to measure everything that's in there. And so it requires a lot of thought mm -hmm. in advance about how are you going to measure all of these different ideas. And, it, you know, I think a lot of people looking at this from the outside would be like, oh, that seems like a really trivial thing. But no, I, it, it really shows how deliberate and careful you have to be whenever you're measuring anything sex related. And that even includes when you're surveying people about their sex lives. You know, if you ask them a question, like, how often do you have sex? Well, what does sex mean? You know, different people define that mm -hmm. in really different ways. And depending on what their definition is and how broad and inclusive it is, you'll get wildly different estimates from people. And so there's really a heck of a lot of care that sex researchers have to put into how they frame and ask every single question to make sure they're getting the best possible data. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I love working with a community advisory board. Often for my research projects now, I will meet with like members of the community and I'll be like, okay, these are the questions I want to ask. And it's a really awesome opportunity to make sure that they're reading the question the same way I'm reading it. Because now my brain is all wrecked by all the science I've read and the way that I, and you like when you ask someone a question, they might not think of things the same way that I think of it. Like I was just working on a questionnaire with a colleague earlier today where we were like, okay, if we ask people like, are they, are they avoiding sex because of COVID? Like, 
what does it mean if they say, yes, I'm avoiding? Like, does that mean that some sex is unavoidable? So like, how can we ask this question so that we get at like, are you trying not to have sex, but still having sex because of COVID? And or are you just like completely abstaining? And we're like, oh, we don't want to use the word abstain because like that has like value judgment on it. Like people might feel like they don't want to answer that, say yes to that because like, what does it mean to abstain? And so like, you can really get very like granular and esoteric but you have to ask your question very precisely because like you said if i survey a bunch of university students and i say like did you have sex last night i might have all of them say yes but some of them had oral sex and some of them had vaginal sex and some of them got a hand job and some of them had masturbated and they're all saying yes that they had sex Yes. I mean, it is so much harder than people think that it is. And I think what you said about talking to people in the community and using that as information to shape and guide the questions that we ask, it's really important. And it helps to prevent researcher bias from coming in. Because if we just assume that people think about everything the same way that we do or have the same sexual values that we do, you know, then the data that we get is not going to be very good. So, Let's talk a little bit more about sex research conferences and specifically some of the most interesting, like mind-blowing things you've learned by attending one of these meetings. And I have a few different stories that come to mind, so I'll go first with one and then ask you to jump in with some of yours. But one of the presentations that really stands out to me was given by Dr. Brad Segrin, who runs the Science of BDSM Lab. And this was at the Society for Personality and Social Psychology Sexuality Pre-Conference, which I've been an organizer of for several years. And we invited Dr. Segrin to come in and talk about some of his work. And so he described this study where they had participants who were BDSM practitioners taking part in an extreme ritual. And then the researchers were stopping them at various points to give them surveys and have them take cognitive tests. Like, so just like imagine for a second, like you're in the midst of a BDSM ritual and then a researcher comes up to you and says, okay, complete this Stroop task. And a Stroop task is basically where you have a word that's written that is a color, like say blue, but it's printed in the color green and you're asked you know to say what the color is and it's you know tricky and confusing because you've got different sources of information but it's a way of capturing something about the mental state that people are in and the way that they're processing information and so what segrin and his colleagues found was that for people who take on dominant and sadistic roles they enter a very different mental space than people who are taking on masochistic and submissive roles and colloquially you know this is known as top space and subspace and people have been writing about this for a long time but no one ever really studied it scientifically and so what sagrin found was that for the people taking on the dominant roles they enter this mental state called flow which is it involves very enhanced focus and concentration they're not easily distracted. And for people who take on the masochistic and submissive roles, they enter this mental state called transient hypofrontality, which, you know, it's not immediately obvious what that means. But basically, it's this almost spiritual state that people describe as kind of one of floating. It's an out-of-body experience for some people. And so for me, seeing somebody who studied this through a scientific lens and had the data and the methods to back it up, I I thought was 
mind blowing, but also it really changed the way that I think about BDSM because now I've got the data and see this difference in mental state and how that's actually one of the appeals of BDSM to a lot of people is that they're intentionally seeking that change in mental state, that escape from self-awareness. So I'm curious, Shana, what are some things that you've learned at sex research conferences that you just thought were mind blowing? Oh, I I feel like my example is super nerdy, (laughs) but uh, one thing that really blew my mind was this researcher talking about this big online study that they had run where they were trying to recruit trans folks from all over the world to do their survey. They had all of these checks in to make sure that they they didn't have any any people trying to like scam the study and just get the reward and, and just filling out random stuff. And then when they started looking at their data, they realized that their study had gotten like uh, still had been infiltrated and by people who were just farming their study for the reward. And they realized it because they had added, asked so many questions about people's, people's bodies and, and their sex experiences that people who were saying like in the first part of the study that they had a penis and then later on that they didn't or they didn't and then they did or, or like, like a flesh penis. Uh, and like people's, people's body parts were changing and their genders were changing, but like not in a way that makes sense for people transitioning or detransitioning. And they're so disappointed. And I that presentation kind of blew my mind because I was like, oh, no, <laughs> I'm planning an online study. What am I going to tell? How am I going to make sure that my study doesn't get messed up? Yeah. And that's one of the, the potential risks anytime you're doing online research is how do you protect it against people who want to prank you or are just in it to try and make a quick buck or something like that? And you know, it points to the need to have a lot of safeguards in any time you do an online study to make sure that you're getting the best possible data, which again goes back to the fact that sex research, you know, might sound like it'd be easy to conduct, but it's not. And and so much of it is online anymore because there's not a lot of funding available for sex research and you can get more diverse samples online than you can get with a college student subject pool. But it takes a lot of care and effort to make sure that you're getting good quality data online. Yeah. Another example of a study that just blew my mind is I've seen Dr. Paul Vasey present a few times and he does cross-cultural research. Specifically, a lot of it happens in Samoa. And one of the things he's found in his work is that our idea of kind of like what the Western gay man looks like or acts like it doesn't exist in Samoa. And the concept of being transgender doesn't exist there either. So in Samoa, you have men and women, and then you have this third gender category called fafafine, which is a term that literally means in the manner of woman. And so you have these people who are born in male bodies who dress and act in a more feminine manner, and they don't identify as men or women, they identify as fafafine, and their sexual attractions are almost exclusively toward men, but they don't identify as gay, right? They're, they're fafafine. It's this separate category. And one of the things that Basie has seen is that as Grinder has made its way to the island of Samoa, you know, Grinder, the gay sex and hookup app. I know some people call it a friendship app, but a lot of people use it for sexual purposes. But as Grinder has kind of infiltrated Samoa and been introduced to the island, that conceptualizations around sex and gender are changing and that they're starting to see some men identify as gay men and dress and act and appear in ways that gay men are more likely to appear in a place like the United States. And so 
all of that work just really helps you to realize how our sexual identities and gender identities, these things are shaped in powerful ways by the culture around us. And it's so fascinating to me because so many people think about gender and sexual identity and all these things is you're born this way, right? But these things, these identities, they're shaped by the cultural environment in which we're embedded. One of the other really fascinating things Vasey has found is that bisexual behavior is extraordinarily common in Samoa. And so he's tried to conduct research on men's sexual behavior in Samoa and has actually found it's very difficult to find men who have not slept with both women and Fafafine, right? And there's actually also this intersexual competition that happens where women and Fafafine are competing for the same male partners. And it, it's just the gender dynamics and sexual dynamics are just so fascinating. And they challenge a lot of our beliefs about sort of the innateness of a lot of these identities and, and just show us how much variability there is across cultures. Yeah. One of the things I love about sex conferences is even when there's no session happening that is directly related to my research, there's so many topics that are just inherently interesting that it's worth your while to just sit in on a session. Like there was a, a presentation I went to at uh, at ISR one year that was on sexuality and primates. I don't do anything related to primates, but I was like, oh, I'll, I'll check this out. But the presentation ended up being so interesting because it was about how um, it was a species of primate where older females in the troop will train younger females how to, how to have sex and how to masturbate. And, and it was just like so interesting and so cool that that these these older female primates they they like take the younger primates under their uh, the younger female primates under their wing and they're like okay this is this is how it goes down they teach them how to how to masturbate on deer um and basically like let them practice having sex with them so that when they are with a male they'll they'll know what's up it's just very cool nothing close to what i research but like amazing yeah, and I think it's so true. There's never a dull moment at a sex research conference. There's always an interesting talk. And that's something I struggle with when I go to like the general academic conferences and I'm, I'm like looking at the program and I'm like, everything going on right now is boring. <laughs> and I don't have that experience. Gives you a chance to tour the city. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's a good excuse to get out on the town. But the sex research conferences, it's kind of, there's always so much competition because there are so many things that sound interesting at any given point in time. And so the days are really full and you'll learn a lot. But beyond just learning fascinating things, I also wanted to take a moment to talk about how these conferences have changed us professionally. So, you know, one personal example I can give is that several years back, a networking event at one of these conferences, I happened to sit down next to an editor from Playboy. And we got to talking and he invited me to write an article for them. And so I wrote this article. It was on cuckolding fantasies. And there's a previous episode on cuckolding if you want to learn more about that. But it became extraordinarily popular and it led to literary agents contacting me saying, hey, you should write a book. And I wasn't thinking about writing a book before that. And so, you know, that experience and the ability to meet people and network, not just with other researchers, but also with journalists, like really helped to shape my career and take it in different directions that wouldn't have happened if we didn't have that in-person meeting. So are there any 
ways that your professional life has been influenced by these conferences? Oh, lots. I mean, I mentioned when we were talking earlier about my my like academic career, how I had a, a supervisor who wasn't a sex researcher. And it was great that he signed off and let me do what I wanted to do. But one of the limitations of that is he couldn't offer a lot of guidance in terms of like what literature I should review, like what are th- what things were important. And also being the only person researching sexuality at my institution, I ended up feeling like a lab of one and, and being like a bit alone. And so sex research conferences ended up being so important for like keeping me informed about the literature, keeping me informed about new methodologies to try and keeping me connected to an amazing community so that I wasn't in a lab of one. I wasn't so isolated. And it's also given me some cool opportunities. Like my first postdoc with Robin Milhausen was possible because she and I got to know each other at conferences and got to know each other. And I had applied to go to grad school with her, but I always had bad luck. It was, she was either like going on mat leave or on sabbatical, both times that I applied to work with her. Cause I was like, Oh, I tried for masters and then tried again for PhD. And she and I had always wanted to work together because we'd gotten to know each other at conferences. And so it worked out for me to do my first postdoc with her. Plus like you and I, we, we ended up taking the, a group of students for a class in Amsterdam Never would have happened if we hadn't become friends at a conference. I remember you gave me the best compliment when you invited me. You said, I feel like you're a good balance of like fun and responsible. So I trust you to like help me with the sleep. And I was like, <laughs> that is the nicest thing. <laughs> yes. Fun and responsible is is how I would describe Shana. And yeah, I forgot that that did also happen at a conference, you know, might have been over cocktails. And I, I asked you to be my teaching assistant for my study abroad course. And we had a great time in Amsterdam. I actually went two years in a row and took the students all around the city to the red light district and opened their eyes to how sex and sexual attitudes and education is all different cross-culturally. And I'm glad that I had you there to, to share those experiences with. And I know that the students loved having Auntie Shana there with them uh, to, <laughs> to not only educate them, but also, you know, have fun and make sure they didn't get into trouble. <laughs> it was super fun. And and the food tour was like the best part. All the amazing oh, yeah. food. Yes. Justin and I clearly love food a lot. <laughs> oh, I know. I know how easily you were seduced by that pizza and how that, you know, set you down the dark path of becoming a sex researcher. <laughs> and then you, it took me all the way to Amsterdam where you gave me more food. I know. It's perfect. I'm bribing you with food. But we have much more to discuss, including some interesting things Shana has found in her research. But first, a quick break for a word from our sponsor. Looking to boost your bedroom performance? Our friends at Promescent have you covered. Promescent has an extensive line of sexual wellness products, including a female arousal gel, libido-boosting supplements, massage oils, condoms, and much more. They also have a popular delay spray, which has been clinically shown to help men last longer in bed. You can customize this spray for your body to achieve the desired effect. And when used as directed, you don't need to worry about it transferring to your partner. Check it out and you'll see why it's recommended by more than 2,000 medical professionals and has thousands of five-star reviews. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee on all orders and free shipping on orders over $10. They also ship all orders in discreet, plain white bubble mailers to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place your order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. And we're back. My guest today is sex researcher, Dr. Shana Skakun-Sparling. 
Shana, what I'd like to talk about next is your own research and some of the key things you've found. So let me start with one of my favorite studies that you've ever done, which looks at the impact of sexual arousal on decision-making. Basically, you had people watch sexually arousing videos, and then you asked them to report on how willing they would be to take various sexual risks. And in another study, they viewed those erotic videos, and then they played a game of blackjack to see whether arousal impacted people's willingness to make risky bets. So can you tell us a little bit about what you found there? How does sexual arousal impact the decisions that people make? Yeah, no problem. So I ran these two studies as as kind of partner studies because we wanted to know, does sexual arousal... So previous work looking at sexual arousal had only looked at it in men. And I was like, I'm pretty sure women have their judgment influenced by sexual arousal too. I mean, we're humans also, and sex is pretty cool and fun. So one of the things that was novel about my study was that I included men and women so I could compare And when I looked at people's willingness to engage in risky sex after I had shown them these sexually arousing video clips, I found like, yes, men were were more willing to engage in uh, sexual risk taking compared to women. But women who were in my sexual arousal condition were much more willing to engage in sexual risk taking compared to women in my control condition. So that was really interesting and and important to kind of show like, yes, women are also being influenced by sexual arousal. So asking them to kind of be the gatekeepers, the ones who have to say no, is even more unfair because they're trying to battle their own sexual arousal as well. And so it makes much more sense if everybody's trying to practice safer sex and if you set yourself up well in advance. So having found that, we wanted to know, okay, does sexual arousal only affect your decision-making when it comes to sexual risk-taking? Kind of like it's a bad idea to go grocery shopping when you're really hungry because that's how you come home with cake. But is it a bad idea to go clothing shopping when you're really hungry? So we wanted to know, does sexual arousal impact your your judgment and your, your impulsivity kind of overall? So I set up this blackjack game with a computer that it looks like you're playing blackjack, but really I have dictated everything that's going to happen. And you have an option to like hit or stay playing against this my blackjack dealer. And I've dictated in advance whether you're going to win or lose that hand, but it doesn't seem like it. Oh, the power you have, Shana. <laughs> I learned a lot about blackjack designing this setting because <laughs> I was interested if people people who were sexually aroused, how would they would they be more likely to hit or stay? And I found that there was no gender difference. People who were sexually aroused were more likely to hit on those ambiguous hands. So people were showing more impulsivity and more risk taking, even outside of a sexual domain. That's so fascinating. And it, it's got me thinking about lots of things. Like, is it a bad idea to go grocery shopping when you're horny? Um, <laughs> what are you going to put in your cart? But <laughs> you know, speaking of this, I guess I'm curious about a few things. One is what is the reasoning? So why, when people become sexually aroused, do they take more risks? You know, what, what is it cognitively that explains that? Yeah, I had I had those questions too because I, I was like, cool, we found this effect. So why? And so I ran a set of follow up studies. I ran a, a series of follow up studies to try and dig more into this question. And so I looked at things like people's motivational state. Does sexual arousal shift their motivational state? Does it shift them away for from a motivational state where they're thinking about their goals and their the consequences, the future consequences of the behavior? And instead, is it shifting them into a state where they're thinking more about enjoying the moment and having a good time? And it, it yes, people who had my sexual arousal condition were when I compared them to how they answered 
my measure of, of this kind of like motivational valence when I asked them at least 24 hours before they came into the study and I asked them during the study, people in my sexual arousal condition were showing much more of this motivational valence towards enjoying the moment, which kind of matches up when we ask people like, hey, why didn't you use a condom last time? They'll be like, oh, I was caught up in the moment. So it turns out they are shifting into this motivational valence where they think they're caught up in the moment. I also looked at self-control and I found that people in my sexual arousal condition compared to people in my control condition were showing much lower levels of self-control and sexual self-restraint although it wasn't affecting their self-efficacy. So I thought maybe people don't feel as able to negotiate for condom use or as able to think about their sexual health, but it didn't affect self-efficacy. So it seems that it's not that being sexually aroused doesn't make you, makes you feel like you can't ask for safer sex. It makes you feel like you don't want to. So something else I'm thinking about here is are people using this knowledge in some ways to exploit us. And particularly I'm thinking about like the risky bets that people make in blackjack when they're sexually aroused. Like, is this why at some casinos in Las Vegas, obviously pre pandemic times, they'll have like sexy dancers, like performing around the tables. (laughs) Is it because they want people to get in that like sexually aroused mindset that pushes them to take on more risk than they otherwise would in a way that actually benefits the house. So do you think that people are being manipulated at all in this way? Uh, I think that it's it, it's an accidental manipulation because I feel like casino owners probably haven't read my paper, <laughs> but I think that they're thinking about entertaining people. And, and I think that their plan of entertaining people, maybe they don't understand why it works so well to get people to play more risky, risky games. But if you have a sexy cocktail servers coming by the table and flirting with, uh, with the players, <laughs> they might think that they're just encouraging their players to have a good time. And that's why they want to stay and not realizing that by getting them all turned on, they're playing riskier bets. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, the next phase of your career could be casino consultant and, <laughs> That sounds like a lot of fun. That sounds lucrative and like a lot of free food. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm also curious in these studies, how did you find the videos that you used to arouse your participants? You know, what were those videos like? And, you know, how do you ensure that people are going to be aroused by them? Because, you know, different people are turned on by different things. And I think this is a question raised in a lot of sexual arousal research. Like, we need to manipulate people's feelings of arousal if we want to study the impacts of it. But how do you do that in a way that ensures you're going to have that desired effect? Yeah, that's a great question. So I I went a couple of different routes. I ended up reading a, a whole bunch of papers about sexual arousal, and but not trying to make people sexually aroused. I ended up reading a lot of papers from Meredith Chivers lab because they have been researching the specificity of sexual arousal. So what turns people on, what turns women on, what turns men on, are there differences? And one of the things that was really important for my research was their findings that a lot of the stuff that turns women on also turns men on. So if I could pick videos that would work for women, they would work for men too. So that was like an important like first step. And then they had published a paper a little bit before I was designing my studies where they had used a set of videos and had worked well in their in their study to make women and men sexually aroused. And so I contacted them directly. I contacted Kelly Shashinsky, actually, who was the lead author on that paper and was like, Kelly, what what videos did you use so that I could try and find them? And um, and she got back to me. <laughs> Please share your porn with me, Kelly. I need to. I need it for research. <laughs> oh man, the, my colleagues in grad school, 
I had to make sure my office door was closed or I'd get in trouble with the administration. And I was like, I am in here doing serious research. Come on, stop walking by the, on my office door. I had to, and because I, I had to like edit these clips down to, to two minute clips, and I had to watch the whole videos to figure out like which two clips, which two minute clips were going to be good. Cause I didn't want something with just people kissing, but I didn't, if you get like, later on where like things are like very intense without the context of what's happened earlier. It like feels out of context. And it's like, Whoa, this is a lot of pumping really fast. And like, you need like some preamble. So I had to find like the right two minutes to show people. Yeah. And then later on, I end up just looking up some other directors who had won feminist porn awards. And so, yeah, I ended up with like a set of videos that I was confident worked well. I mean, when I check, I did a manipulation check. So I asked people after they watched the videos, how sexually aroused are you? And people in my sexual arousal condition were may- way more aroused than people in my control condition. So that's good because my control condition had like clips from Mad Men, clips from Wally, <laughs> I had, like kids <laughs> movies and stuff, clips from a documentary. So I was like, okay, good, good. My, my sexual arousing video clips are arousing people. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that shows like just how much thought again, you have to put into all of this. And if you want to include a sexual arousal manipulation, it's not as simple as like, go on the internet, type in free porn and just show people whatever you find. No, it's, you have to find porn that's likely to be arousing to different groups of people. And that, like you said, doesn't escalate and get too intense too quickly and all these other sorts of things. And it's, again, just a lot more work than I think a lot of people would realize. I'm also curious, did you run into any issues in trying to get that kind of research approved by an ethics board? And the reason I ask is because I had a colleague a few years ago who wanted to do a sexual arousal study and needed to show people erotic videos because how else are you going to arouse them if you can't have an erotic stimulus? And the IRB, Institutional Review Board, said, no, like you can't show porn to college students because, you know, we're in part a state-funded university and we don't want even the perception or potential criticism that someone could say, oh, you're a the state is subsidizing showing porn to college students, right? And so the way she had to get around that was by looking at like award-winning foreign films that had steamy sex scenes and using those as her erotic material because then she could justify that and say that it wasn't porn, it was art. So have you ever run into any issues like that in, in trying to do sex research? This was one of the ways that my supervisor really had my back. So even though he wasn't a sex researcher, he knew that if you're going to do something that's a little bit risky, that it's a good idea to meet with your REB, so that your research ethics board chair. So uh, he arranged for me to meet with our, the ethics board, cha- the chair of the ethics committee. And I kind of talked through with him what the study was going to be and how long the clips were going to be. I like prepared in advance for this meeting by like finding literature about how some kinds of pornography, the literature links with causing harm to people who viewed it. And actually like a researcher at my institution at the time had done some of that work. So I, I like read their work and to make sure that I was not showing so that I could say like, so this person found that this kind of stuff's damaging and I'm not going to show that stuff. I'm going to show this stuff that like other research papers and like their research paper like implicitly says like it's not going to harm people and I promise it's going to be okay and I will do so I and I had like a long debriefing script to make sure people were okay and I had to have all of these safety measures so that if somebody found that they were really uncomfortable after each block they could quit the study 
And it's funny because people were really worried that the women in my study were going to be distressed by this. And I was like, no, I found good stuff for women. It's going to be okay. And I never had a woman discontinue the study, but I did have like a handful of men discontinue, which I totally get because they are, they were doing the study on campus and I could see if they started feeling themselves getting like really, really aroused. I could see for some people that might be a little bit anxiety provoking because it's like, I'm on campus where I'm supposed to be like serious and I have to go to class after this. Like I got to get out of (laughs) here. But for the most part, it worked really well and I didn't have any participants report being distressed. It all worked out. Actually, we had one time where somebody reported being distressed and it was because what distressed them was that there was some deception in my study. So I didn't tell people I was looking at how sexual arousal affects your decision-making because I was worried about what we call expectancy effects that basically like if you expect you're going to be ridiculous when you've been drinking alcohol, you might be more likely to be ridiculous if you think you're drinking alcohol. So to try and get around that, I told people I wanted to get their ratings of these film clips and then also answer some questions. I, I, I can't ex- remember exactly, but it was like a very minor deception. It was approved by my research ethic board, which is one of the reasons why I had such a, like, a long debriefing to make sure people were okay. And it wasn't the aspects of the study that the person was upset about. It was the whole fact that there had been any deception at all. So like my supervisor and I met with them and talked them through, and they actually ended up being totally fine with it. It's just like in the moment, hearing the word deception, they're like, you deceived me? What? Uh, and then they were okay. It was fine. It all it all worked out. We didn't even have to file an in-state report because the person ended up being totally fine once we explained things more with them, talked about it more. You have to be extra yeah, careful with people when you're doing sexuality research. Absolutely. And I think you've done a great job of describing, again, how much care and effort goes into all of this. And, you know, there is that potential that people could be offended or distressed by some of the materials in the study and so you have to have all these contingencies in place in case events and situations like that arise and i think your advice is good you know for fellow sex researchers who may be listening having that conversation in advance with your research ethics board can be a good way to go to figure out what the potential concerns are going to be up front so that you can design your study in a way that addresses them effectively Now, you've conducted a lot of research, Shana, and we don't have time to dig into everything. But one other study I wanted to briefly discuss was this study where you found that physical attractiveness seems to matter in people's sexual health decisions. And in one study, you found that women were less likely to intend to use condoms with an attractive male partner than one who was less attractive. So why does attractiveness, why would that impact somebody's willingness to use condoms? And is there a similar effect that also happens for men? Because I believe you only had female participants in that study. There is some some work that's kind of it's a, it's a little stuck in the pipeline looking for the effect in, in men. The reason why we think attractiveness matters is a little bit that sexual arousal thing and a little bit these complicated calculations that we do in our heads. So there's a lot of things that make a partner appealing. It could be that they're really good looking. It could be that you you feel like very familiar, like, oh, this is like my longtime friend from high school or like, oh, I've been working with this person for several months. I feel like I really trust them. I feel like I really know them. So these are the kinds of things that that build up and build into us convincing ourselves that we don't need to take as many health precautions because we're really bad at at making objective 
decisions. I mean, that's one of the reasons that why we're so successful as a species is using these heuristics that like, oh, if I really like somebody, then it must be okay. If we are always using these kind of decision-making shortcuts, it's just sometimes it's not a great idea. So a really attractive a partner, whether their attractiveness has to do with their physical appearance or how, how well you feel like you know them or how well you feel like you want to know them, that can really throw you for a loop for when you're trying to make, make a decision about whether or not you should insist on using condoms or if they say no, or whether you're willing to suggest it. I mean, that's one of the things I loved about research and condom negotiation was how inside our heads we get and how much what's inside our heads stops us from asking for what would be totally reasonable. Like in one of my studies looking at condom negotiation, I had women who expected that their partner, their male partner, that if they expected him that he wasn't interested in condom use, they were less likely to suggest condom use. Meanwhile, a lot of the guys were saying they're just sitting back and waiting for her to suggest it. And so if you're, if you're stopping yourself from saying what you want, then the other person's like, well, I mean, I, I don't know if I should bring it up. So, okay, whatever. But if their partner suggested it, they would say yes. It's really interesting. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I got into psychology. <laughs> yeah. And I think what you've described is why your research is so important and why sex research in general is important because we need to understand why people are having the conversations that they are, why they aren't discussing some of the things that they should be, what is holding them back. How can we help people more effectively navigate these situations to ensure consent and safety? This is all super important and it's stuff that could help in preventing sexual assault. It is stuff that could help in ensuring greater sexual pleasure and just all kinds of ways that we can help people improve their intimate lives and relationships. So thank you for the important work that you're doing. And thank you so much for this really fun and fascinating conversation. It was truly a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work? Oh, gosh. Well, you can find me on Twitter. I am at Shanagram. So S-H-A-Y-N-A-G-R-A-M. In my profile there, I have a link to my website. My website name is a little long, so I won't spell it out on this podcast. But find me on Twitter. Yeah, so follow Shana Graham. And you can also check out my Instagram feed, Justin J. Lee Miller. If you scroll way back, do a deep dive. You can find pictures of Shana and me in Amsterdam for our <laughs> study abroad courses and see all of the fun things that we did while we were over there and some of the cool things that our students learned. Thanks again for your time, Shana. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of the podcast, you can visit my website, Sex and Psychology, at sexandpsychology.com, or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform, where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the podcast. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want, if you want to learn more about the science of sexual fantasy and desire. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. <laughs>